As Claire's already mentioned, we're, we're starting this morning looking at um, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. If we could just have the, um, the quick PowerPoint up. Um, it's a not particularly long letter, if you know it, but there is tons in it. So before we actually hear some verses from the beginning, just a few little bits of info if you're interested in these kind of things. Who wrote Colossians? Well, it's Paul, but Paul with Timothy. And it was written to this church or churches around the Roman city of Colossae, a place that is in modern-day Turkey, about 100 miles up a river valley from Ephesus. Colossae is a town of about 25,000 to 30,000 people at this point, so quite a big place, double the size of Lim, if that's of interest to you. And it was written probably in AD 62 or AD 63, while Paul is in prison. Why did Paul write this letter? What's it going to be about? Well, it's a letter that is really in two sections. The first part, after we get past the introduction, which we'll look at today, is all about Jesus. It's all about declaring who Jesus is and the supremacy of Christ. The second part is is almost saying, well, what do we do with that? It's great to know who Jesus is, but so what? What does that mean for practical living? What does that mean for our everyday life? Because there were problems happening in the church in Colossae. It was a church in a pagan city, and paganism was starting to infiltrate back into the church. And what became known as Gnosticism, which is a kind of mystical mix of Christianity that sort of denied who Jesus was, a very dangerous thing. So why should we read it? Well, firstly, it's God's word, and we should read all of God's word because God speaks to us through it. But secondly, and this was really key in our leaders' day yesterday, and thank you again to those who were praying for us, was just the sense that God is calling us back to simplicity in the gospel, calling us back to a life of dedicated discipleship that is really focused on the core of the gospel. That's who we are. That's what we're about. That is the central reason we are here. So this book will call us back to that. So without me wishing on for too much longer, I'm going to ask George if you'll come up and read verses 1 to 14 to us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all his people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. 
so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks, George. Let's just pray again, shall we, as we open these words together. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Just thank you again for that amazing reminder that through Christ we are brought from darkness to light. And we pray that as we just look at these words for a few moments, that you will encourage us that where we um, need to be brought back to you, you will draw us back. Where we need to be challenged, you will challenge. Where we need to be comforted, you will comfort. So, Lord, open your word, we pray, by your spirit. Amen. Tuesday this week, um, I got a phone call. I was was in the church office, and a man from Stanner rang me. You know Stanner, the lift company? And he wanted to come and service the lift. That's exciting, isn't it? Life doesn't get much better than that kind of phone call. So he arrived, and I got the joy of opening the doors into the lift to let him in. And I also got the the rare privilege of going underneath here into the lift control room. Not many people have been in there. It's a very, very exciting place. Just so you get an idea of where it is, it's probably quite a long way under that gap over there in church. And there's a door, and the door is locked. You have to open it with a key. Now, I'm opening this door thinking I'm about to open the door into the darkness of the foundations of the bowels of the building. What spiders of what size will be lurking under here? Will there be any furry friends greeting me, either of the smaller or larger variety? But I get my sense of of courage and bravery. I put the key in the lock, and I open the door. As I open the door, the light from in the room, the youth kitchen starts to flood in. But there are still corners in that room that I can't see. There are still shadows. So bravely, I reach for the light switch. (laughs) I turn the light switch on. The whole room is flooded with lights, and all my fears were an illusion. Aren't you pleased to hear that? (laughs) There was nothing running towards me. It was one of those amazing moments. But that's what light does, isn't it? When we shine light into the darkness, the darkness has no chance The darkness is dispelled. And one of the great themes of the New Testament is that Christ is the light of the world. The light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it, it says in John 1 verse 5. So Paul here, he is writing to a new group of Christians, this church in Colossae, this church that he hasn't yet to visit and we don't know whether he ever visited them or not. And it's a church that is facing problems but also needs encouragement. So what does Paul do? Well, he starts off by giving thanks to God for the church. He starts off by giving thanks, and then he moves to pray for the church. So we're just going to look at those two things this morning, about being thankful on the first hand and then being prayerful on the second. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might want to keep it open because we will be referring to some of the verses as we go through. So verse 3, we always thank God our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Why? Why does Paul give thanks for this church? Well, it's because of their faith and their love out of the hope of the gospel. 
You know, if the church is to be characterized by anything, it is to be characterized by love. That is to be our defining mark. That is what we are about. If we're not loving, we have somehow lost the plot. But Paul sees this. He sees that the word of God, the gospel, has been planted into this church and is starting to grow and the light of Christ is starting to shine brighter and brighter. You know, for Paul, the the gospel is never something that just happens once in somebody's life and then that's it. You know, you just sign on the dotted line. The gospel starts when you accept Jesus, but then it grows. It's all like those kingdom parables that Jesus talks about. You know, like a mustard seed that takes root in your life and grows as the light of Christ shines deeper and deeper. And for all these reasons, Paul gives thanks to the church. Now, our society is not a particularly thankful society. You, you may have noticed that. We're, we're much better at being critical than we are of giving thanks. And I don't know if you ever read TripAdvisor reviews. Does anybody ever read them before you go anywhere? Now, I came across this one today. Um, it's too small to put on the screen, but I don't know if you can see that. It's a, it's a picture of Ben Nevis. Anyone climbed Ben Nevis? I'm going to put my hand up. There's a, there's a few people here who've been up Ben Nevis. Now, Ben Nevis, if you don't know what it is, it's the tallest mountain in the British Isles. It's just over 4,400 feet high. Um, quite a challenge, but not too horrendous a walk. But this is the review. I will read it to, to you. Very steep and too high. <laughs> Gives it one star. <laughs> this was almost a full day's climbing, and my girlfriend was crying at one point. When we did get to the top, there was nothing there. (laughs) Snowden has a pub, restaurants, and toilets at the top. Luckily, we had brought some sandwiches and drinks. So anyone else climbing this one, be warned, there are no facilities at the top. The climb basically went on far, far too long. And the last part was particularly steep and difficult. It was also cloudy at the top, so the view was non-existent. The long walk back down was boring. And again, took far too long. Can you believe that? There's not really anything to say, is there? Why on earth do you write a review like that? But it's easy to be critical. It's very easy to be critical. It's very easy to look at something and say, why didn't somebody flatten this mountain a little bit so it was easier for me? Why is there no cafe at the top? But to be critical is literally to pull down. It's not to offer any suggestions. It's just to pull down. Paul will not be the kind of writer, the kind of apostle, who will just come in with criticism. He will challenge, but that is different. You see, Paul will challenge this church deeply, as he does to all the churches he writes to. And if you want to see Paul challenging, read the book of Galatians, where he starts off, you foolish Galatians, how quickly have you abandoned the gospel? And he will challenge them, but he will start from a position of thankfulness for what God is doing. You see, when we're thankful, it changes us. You can't be thankful and critical at the same time. You can be thankful and challenging. You can be thankful and prayerful. But it's this challenge to be thankful for what God is doing. Are we thankful today? Are we thankful not only for what God is doing in our lives, but are we thankful for what God is doing in our church's life, but also in other churches' lives? Are we also thankful for what God is doing in the lives of people we don't know? Because Paul is thankful for a church he has never visited. This is not Paul sort of saying, I'm thankful that I've had a nice day. He's thankful for what the gospel is doing. When we're thankful for what God is doing, it does change our perspective. Second thing Paul is, is prayerful. Verse 9, it says, we have not stopped praying for you. 
Paul says a very similar thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, when he says, Rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in everything. I wonder if we can say, hand on heart, that we continually pray for anything. Is that your experience? Is that my experience? Because Paul offers that, not as a suggestion, but as a command. Pray continually. Now, I grew up um, going to a, a C of E primary school where we were taught to pray. I also went to Sunday school where we were taught the same way of praying. And if you went through that kind of model of prayer, it was hands together, eyes closed, bow your head. That was the prayer stance. That's how you pray. That's what you do to pray. Now, there is nothing wrong at all with that way of praying. The, the clasping of hands, apparently that comes from the medieval period, where if you went to somebody like this, it was a sign of servitude. You came in front of your master with your hands clasped, asking for mercy. So you come before God in the same way, asking God for his mercy and his patience and his love to us. The closing of eyes when we pray, well, that's even earlier still. It's not in the Bible, but it's, it's in those first centuries of the church. Apparently, if you were in front of a king or an emperor, you didn't look them in the eye. That was considered inappropriate. So you would avert your gaze or you would even close your eyes. So what did people do in prayer? They said, well, we won't look face to face with God. We will avert our eyes. So you close your eyes and pray. Now, I don't know about you, but I find closing my eyes to prayer just stops me being distracted. And I can find that quite helpful. But when we're praying continually, that becomes a bit of a problem. Because I like to pray when I'm driving. I don't advise trying to do that or close your eyes when we're driving. Or when you're cutting the grass. Or when you're doing other things in life. It's just not practical. It's not possible. The Hebrew way of praying was to pray with arms outstretched. We see that in the Bible, raising holy hands to the Lord. That, again, is not practical to keep doing at all times, in all occasions. You see, what I think we do sometimes is we make prayer an event with a beginning and an end. We say, dear Lord, and then we say, amen, at the end, and then we get on to something else. Rather than what Paul is encouraging here, which is a life of complete devotion and prayerfulness. Both saying prayers, where we actively say a prayer, but also that life of prayerfulness, where we live consciously in the presence of God, where we see that whatever we're going through, whether it's the mundane or the exciting, whether it's the traumatic or the joyful, that God is there, that by his spirit he is present. So it might be that we just say the, the arrow prayer. You know, I hope we've done that. You know, God, would you help me in this situation? Or it may be that we're just aware of the presence of God at all times, that we, we practice, as it's sometimes called, the presence of God. If we live with that perspective in life, if we live with prayerfulness as well as prayer, it totally changes our perspective, that God is always present. But look at what Paul prays. It's a pretty big prayer. Look down at verse 9, down to verse 12. He prays for the knowledge of his will and understanding. That's of God's will and understanding. He prays in verse 10 that they will live a life worthy of their calling that they will please him in every way, that they will bear fruit in every good work, that will, they will be strengthened in his power, and that they will give joyful thanks to the Father. Now, I've said this um, quite a number of times, but I think when we pray, we regularly just pray for situations. Now, that is good. It's good to pray for situations, and we must keep doing that. And a lot of those situations, we can find ourselves praying, God, make it stop, or God, make it start. Um, that, that's human nature. Those are the kind of things we do pray for. And we are told to pray, you know, for our daily bread, for those situations. But just look at what Paul is praying for here. He's praying for the people of Colossae to become obedient. 
to become those who instinctively know what the Father's will is. Those who can live lives that bear good fruit for the gospel. After our away day yesterday, um, I took the dog out for a walk. And I went up on the canal and went up around some footpaths. And I got to this path and there were nettles on either side. Now, I'm not brave enough like some people to wear shorts at this time of year. I did have my jeans on. But I had a T-shirt on, and so I was conscious that I didn't want to touch the nettles. Now, you don't have to tell me to do that. I instinctively know that nettles hurt. You know, I have fallen headfirst into a patch of nettles once. I know that nettles hurt. I've lived in this country all my life. I don't need to be told. So I just do it. I pull my arms in. I instinctively react to the situation around me. If I was with somebody who'd lived somewhere where nettles hadn't have existed, I would be saying, watch out, watch out, watch out for that plant with the funny leaves. Watch out, it will hurt if you fall into it. You need to be careful, you need to watch out. What Paul, I think, is praying for here, and this is what Tom Wright calls it, is instinctive Christian living. Praying that the church in Colossae, that these new Christians will instinctively know how to live God's way that they won't have to think about it, that it will just start to happen. It will start to bear fruit in their lives. I don't know if you remember those old bracelets that people used to wear a few years ago that said, what would Jesus do on them? Uh, I don't know if you can still get them, but they, they were quite popular a few years ago. It's almost like having one of those, but not round your wrist as a reminder, but tied onto your heart so that we instinctively know what Jesus is calling us to be. Last week, we, we looked at how we were called to walk in step with the Spirit, to join in with what the Spirit is doing. But this week, what Paul, I think, is saying is actually just pray that God will enable you to become like him. Now, we can't do that on our own. We can't do that. This is the work of the Spirit. This is not a call to rules and regulations. It's a call to pray that we will become like Jesus. The question is, do we have the discipline of prayer to be prayerful enough to pray this prayer? Will we pray it over ourselves? Will we pray it not just for ourselves, but for other people? We need the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, when you pray, in Matthew 6, verse 5, not if you feel like it, not if prayer sounds like a good idea on a Tuesday afternoon, but when you pray, come and pray. Come and bring your requests, your petitions to God. Do we pray this kind of prayer? Do we pray in this kind of way? Colossae, I've already mentioned, it was this pagan city. It would have been full of temples and idols. Paul calls them in verse 13, part of the dominion of darkness. He sees that this is a city that is full of lies and deceit. A city that could easily bring these new Christians out of um, their following of Jesus into other things. And he encourages them, remember who you are in Christ. Remember that you have been brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the sun. We have been bought. We have been paid for. If we're followers of Jesus today, if we've accepted that call, we have been brought into the light. So having been brought in, will we pray for growth? Will we pray for our spiritual growth? Will we pray for our church's spiritual growth? Will we pray that we will instinctively become those followers of Jesus. Well, what I want us to do is, if you've got that Bible in front of you, is just to pray these words over us in the way that Paul prayed them over the church in Colossae. So if you look down at verse 9, if we could have it on the screen, Mike, as well, this is from verse 9. 
perhaps you just want to, to, to just spend just a moment just in the quietness, just looking at those words, and then I will pray them over us, and then if the, the music team could then just come up and we will respond to God in worship. But let's just spend a moment just in quiet, just looking at these words. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and give joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. Lord, we pray that prayer over us as a church family. Lord, we pray that we will be filled with the knowledge of your will. We pray that you will fill us with wisdom and understanding. We pray that individually and as a church family, we may live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have in you. We pray that we will be known for our good works, that we will be known for growing in the knowledge of God, that we will be strengthened by power according to his glorious might so that we will have the endurance and patience to follow you. And Lord, we thank you that through Jesus we have been called. As we remembered last week, we are chosen. Our identity is in you. So Lord, help us to keep praying this prayer over our own lives, over the lives of our church, and over the churches that we know. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.